if I'm going to make this commitment and, and take this leap, I know what kind of financial runway I've got, how much time I'm going to give myself, but I'm going to spend every waking hour going and building this thing. And, and I really focused the initial piece on building real relationships with investors and sort of changing the narrative around the way my friends and family thought about me. And I had this nice portfolio that I could sort of, hey, this is what I've been doing for the last five plus years and it's been really successful. This is the Passive Wealth Strategy Show, the show that will help you escape the Wall Street casino and build wealth on Main Street by investing in real estate. I'm your host, Taylor Lote, and today our guest is Andrew Campbell. Andrew is a very successful real estate investor who scaled from being a passive investor up to buying 80 units all on his own and then taking a big risk, a big gamble to scaling to today's where he now has 4,000 units and assets under management. Really incredible. Today we learn about his journey of relocating himself back to Central Texas, starting building his own real estate portfolio, and taking the big leap into going full-time in real estate to today, where he now has, again, 4,000 units under management. We also discuss his experience, his perspective on the state of the Central Texas market, specifically Austin and San Antonio. What is his perspective on how the economic and real estate conditions have changed over the years, particularly in light of recent increases in interest rates. We also discuss the local economies and just what his thoughts are about those markets in general today. A lot of great knowledge. Andrew is a wealth of experience, and I'm excited to share that with you today. Once again, I'm your host, Taylor Lotes. I'm a real estate investor. I focus on multifamily and self-storage investing. If you'd like to learn more about potentially investing with us on a future deal, just go to investwithtaylor.com, fill out the form, schedule a call, and we will look forward to speaking with you soon. Don't forget to subscribe and catch us here every Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday. Right now, once again, our guest is Andrew Campbell. Let's go. Andrew, thanks so much for joining us today. I'm excited to go through your journey starting as a passive investor and moving into the active side of the space. Before we get into kind of how you got started, tell us about what you're up to today and where you're investing. Yeah, absolutely. And I appreciate you having me. I'm excited for our conversation. I guess as it sits today, you know, we, with Wildhorn Capital, we are based in Austin. We've got about four, a little over 4,000 units that we own and operate um, and kind of exclusively in Central Texas. So our that's where I grew up. Cooper, my business partner, were both born and raised in Austin and, and joke that we're, they call us unicorns. You know, the city's grown so fast. If he was on here, we'd, we'd have a joke about, you know, you've never been on a call in your life with two born and raised Austinites. Uh, but I think that is a big part of what we do and believe in. It gives us a focus and a competitive advantage. We've got conviction about the area and the, you know, which side of the street you want to be on and kind of what's happening economically and where the, where the puck is going a little bit. Um, but so we're central Texas, which we define as, you know, sort of Georgetown to the north, San Antonio to the south. We've got about 4,000 units and that's what we're up to today. Awesome. Great. So let's rewind the clock and talk about how you got started as a passive investor and transitioned onto the active side of things. It's not a common trajectory. That is the path that I took personally, but most folks head the other direction. So why did you start on the passive side and, and when? Yeah, it's a, we'll maybe work backwards. You know, so we're at 4,000 units today. You know, Wildhorn started like 2016. I started kind of passively investing in 2008 and 
if I rewind you know, a year or two prior to that. So I, I was living out of state. My dad had a big health emergency and I moved home in 2007, was kind of helping him rehab, figuring out life and got turned on to passive investing, made a few investments that were truly passive, you know, kind of a, a startup developer and, and a friend that was doing some infill development deals. I mean, that was kind of my first taste of, of real estate investing. It was totally passive. It was happening at a good time, you know, 2008, you'd say, well, that's not a great time to, to get started. And the, you know, the global financial crisis was going on, but we were in the right location, right? I think that's part of what's held true to us today in our belief in, in the continued growth of central Texas, but the population has, has been experiencing explosive growth. And so those first couple of passive investments really sort of whetted my appetite into real estate investing. I started buying duplexes and fourplexes that were maybe a little bit more active, but I'd still say, Hey, these were passive in the sense that I had gone on and got another job, you know, started a family. They were, this was absolutely a side hustle, if you will, side project and kind of built that over time to about 80 doors. Um, and I was doing everything myself. I was dropping off air filters. I was, you know, buying deals. I was talking to residents. I mean, kind of built the systems, if you will. And, and really, I think grew to love it and just really said, man, real estate investing is, I see the value of it. I see the returns happening. I see the, I, I enjoy taking a property, improving a little bit. I enjoy getting the cash flow. I, I just, and it's simple, right? I think that was the other piece is it's a tangible hard asset. Okay. I see a building right here. I see what I'm paying for, what my, my mortgage payment's going to be. I've got to make rents that are higher than that. Like it's, it's not a complicated game. And so I think just gravitated more and more towards this is really interesting and exciting. And I think I got to a point that I recognize I couldn't manage that size portfolio any longer by doing it sort of on the side, but also I was really passionate about the business. And then you recognize that larger buildings are just more efficient. So kind of with the urging of, of my wife kind of encouraged me, said, Hey, this is what you're interested in. Like, let's go do it. You know, we've got this portfolio. We can sell them off if we need to, as needed, we've got enough runway, chase your dreams. And that's kind of how Wildhorn started. And so we, that's the first time I'd ever raised outside capital and it just sort of has snowballed, uh, where it went from one active deal to now we've got 15 assets, 4,000 doors, but that was kind of the, the trajectory, if you will, from sort of 08 to, to today. That's great. So you hit 80 doors, but decided to continue scaling the business. I think a lot of folks who managed to hit 80 doors, maybe look in the mirror and think, can I just retire from my job and not have to work anymore? You know, I, I might not want to go start a active real estate investing business. Why did you decide not to basically sail off into the sunset, living on passive cash flow from the 80 doors, rather scaling up your business and growing? I think some of that is just knowing my personality and, and looking up and saying, Hey, today I'm 43 years old. So I was mid thirties, you know, when kind of Wildhorn was, was getting going, it's like, that sounds great. And it's interesting when I started investing, that was the goal, right? Hey, I want to be able to sit on the beach and do nothing. And I think as I got into it, a, you realize you got a real passion for that business and it's fun. Like it, I legitimately have fun every day. I mean, every conversation you have is not fun. You deal with a lot of different issues, challenges, problems, but I wasn't going to be happy. And I'm not the personality type of person that just sitting around and being retired, if you will, that'd be great for a month after that. Like I've, I've got too much ADD, too much, like I want to get going and, and build something. And so that was, I think just a recognition on my own sort of personality and, and sort of what I wanted out of life, wanted to keep active, you know, wanted to be able to 
show my kids, hey, you got to go work, build something. It just was something didn't really consider. I'd say within a few years of well before the 80 doors, but it's like, okay, I'm never going to stop. It's more of a process and a, a growth mindset than like, all right, I've got 80 doors or 30 doors or whatever it is. And hey, that's going to hit my monthly nut. Now I can just check out. It just pretty early on realized that wasn't me. Interesting. Okay. So what did the day-to-day, week-to-week of owning 80 doors look like? You mentioned about you were dropping off air filters, things like that. Were you you know, taking all of your nights and weekends to find tenants and manage your properties? I mean, how much of a, of a job really were those 80 doors? It was pretty consistent and steady side hustle. Yeah, I would take lunches and go meet a, a, a tenant. I would go before work and drop off air filters or, or after work. So I was almost every single day doing something related to them, whether it was at home doing accounting and sort of back office things. If it was meeting somebody on site or going and, you know, coordinating, I mean, you get pretty good if your sort of network of handymen and, and plumbers and people that, Hey, can you go, need you go head over to, you know, this address and, and deal with this, whatever the issue was. So it was not super passive for sure, but it was still a, it was a daily thing. But again, I was enjoying it and I was staying up until two, three in the morning, like working on it. And that was a little bit of, I, I recognize I can't continue to do both. Obviously I'm having a lot of fun doing this. So let's go, you know, let's go chase it. Love it. So I think a lot of folks are afraid of making that leap into the unknown when they have that real estate portfolio built up, but want to go part-time and, or excuse me, full-time real estate and, and have that itch. What did that feel like for you? You, you and your wife, you know, had uh, an understanding of what the plan was. You could sell properties off to, to make it work, but you know, tell us about making that decision, walking in, leaving your job. What did that all look like and feel like? Still the scariest thing that I think that I've ever done, right. To even, even with her encouragement and support and kind of like pushing me out the door to say, Hey, I'm the the breadwinner and I figure out oh my gosh, health insurance and just the, the little basic blocking and tackling items that you got to go deal with and figure out. Like, I mean, they joke about the golden handcuffs, but breaking free from those. And, and even if it's not the dollars, it's just the, what am I going to do? And then how are people going to think about me? If I go start telling my, my friends and I mean, they all knew how much I was enjoying, how much time I was spending on it. So it wasn't a huge surprise, but it's still, I think you worry about the perception. Oh my God, this guy's lost his, his marbles. You know, he's leaving this job and he's exiting the, the corporate world, if you will. And that was probably the biggest thing that held me up or, or I was concerned about. There was no question that I was going to enjoy it, that I was going to, you know, pursue it and, and just chase, use all my energy and, and resources to kind of make it work. It was totally cutting the cord, you know, burning the boats behind you and, and saying, Hey, we're, we're all in not, there's no going back. That was probably the hardest part. I can believe it. So how much of a roadmap did you have laid out in front of you in terms of, did you have like a deal under contract that you were going to close or did you kind of just have an idea of what you were going to go look for? Just had an idea. I did not have a deal. I think it was, Hey, if I'm going to make this commitment and this, you know, take this leap. I know what kind of financial runway I've got, how much time I'm going to give myself, but I'm going to spend every waking hour going and building this thing. And, and I really focused the initial piece on building relationships with investors and sort of changing the narrative around the way my friends and family thought about me. And I had this nice portfolio that I could sort of, Hey, this is what I've been doing for 
the last five plus years and it's been really successful. And now I'm just doing it on a little bit bigger scale and I'm inviting you to, 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 to participate with me. And so that was early on, just all of my time and energy, like I'm looking for deals for sure, but it was, you got to make sure you can perform on that deal. And, and the only way to do that is make sure you've got the ability to, to raise the capital. And so I did not have a deal. I had a plan and I had just a, a drive to let's go have as many meetings and talk to as many people as I can about what we're going to go do. And then when we have the first deal, be able to execute it. And that's kind of how it happened. That's awesome. So that's tough to do. I think one of the things that stops a lot of us from getting started or, you know, kind of stops us in our tracks after we get started because it kind of stinks so much is just rejection, right? And that's business. You're going to experience rejection. Did you have any like big rejections in that time frame when you hadn't had the deal yet? You did have a track record that you could talk about, but not raising capital. So big rejections along the way, especially getting started, or was it, you know, better than you kind of expected? I mean, you certainly get call it a rejection or, or you just get people questioning and, and saying, Hey, I, that, that's awesome. I'm super excited for you. You know, make up an excuse about why they didn't want to invest. And at that point, I wouldn't even necessarily have an, an actionable deal, right? I'm just talking about, would you be interested if they're in a theoretical deal? But I guess I never really thought about it as rejection is more of just that's I'm in giving you the opportunity to invest, not needing or wanting your, your money as much. And so it was more of like your decision. You're choosing not to make a good investment in my opinion, but that's kind of on you, not on me. And maybe that's just, I don't know, irrational confidence or, or way I just was, Hey, I'm just plowing forward. I'm, I'm trying to have a bunch of meetings. I was super confident in what we were doing. I was super confident in what I had seen in the portfolio and in my own. I was, and I was super confident that the the first deal we saw was going to be good one. And again, it goes back to, because I was focusing on my home market. Like I knew the areas, I knew the deals, I knew the streets, I knew the the projections. So I never took it as getting turned down or, you know, having somebody that, that just dashed my hopes. Although there were a lot of people that said politely, no. It's bound to happen and it can kind of hurt the first couple of times, but it's kind of just part of, of doing business. It's great that you push through. So now I'd like to transition a bit to talking about the market and what your observations have been. You've been investing in Central Texas for all this time now, uh, well over a decade, and things have changed, right? Times have changed. We had big run-up. Now we're in this increasing interest rate environment. So what are your thoughts about Central Texas, Austin, San Antonio over the rest of 2023, but also 2024, 2025, next couple of years? What do you see happening in those areas? Yeah, I mean, I think we see continued growth and probably more than just looking at the next couple of years. I think something we spend a lot of time thinking about is, and it kind of goes to our investment thesis that real estate's a, a long-term game. And we're not looking at it as, can we time the market right in the next one, two, three years? What do we believe are the fundamentals of the market? What is the the prospects for continued job growth, continued population growth. Those are the things that are driving, you know, residential housing, which is sort of our exclusive focus. So we're, we're certainly looking at what's going to happen. You know, interest rates has been the the big talking point for the last 12 months and will continue to be a talking point for the next, you know, 12 months. I mean, who knows more, more than that maybe, but rather than getting as hung up on where are the rates at and how does that impact the next 18 months is we want to continue to make investments that 
we feel we've got good conviction about over the longer term. And that's part of why we're so focused on central Texas. I mean, so we are, are really involved and really this is more Cooper's, my, my business partner's wheelhouse than mine, but this economic development and sort of very politically engaged and involved civically with the city. Uh, he's currently the, the chair of the real estate council of Austin and spent a lot of time at the Capitol during the st state legislation and a lot of stuff at a local city level, but looking and tracking, you know, where are the, who are the big next companies? We've had massive announcements over the last several years, you know, the, the Teslas and the Samsungs and things of, of that scale. And then now you see all these sort of ripple effects of, Hey, here's another 800 jobs that just showed up. That's a, a battery supplier, you know, that I saw a headline last week that they're going into, into Kyle, uh, suburb of Austin. So you see some of those ripple effects. You start looking at what the next big, big announcements could be, you know, things like the Oracle announcement. I mean, all these, that they have these, these ripples. And so there is continued and projected to be further job growth. I think one of the stats that, that comes out a lot is Austin over the last three or four, going back to really like 2000 has been sort of the first, the last city to sort of have negative job growth in a recession, the first city to have positive job growth coming out of the recession. So tend to weather the storm better than other markets. The city's changed a lot and we've certainly seen a lot of growth and you talk about affordability is a, is an issue, something that we are focused on a lot. In some ways that helps, you know, our business in the rental housing space, because it's harder to afford a home here. You're also, you run the risk of people having to leave the city entirely and, and choosing to go to a different part of the country because it's gotten too expensive. But looking at where are jobs heading, you know, within not just, Hey, they're coming to central Texas, but where within central Texas are they going to be? And being in tune with that has us feeling like, Hey, that's, it's going to continue to be a good place to be in, in. Some of that goes back just to the thesis of being in, in residential housing, you know, and people need a roof over their head. And we certainly have economic, you know, interest rate headwinds at the moment, but every asset class has those. We don't have the systemic concerns that office does. Will people come back to the office? How much space does a company need? What do the floor plates look like? There's less of that concern in the, you know, the, the residential multi-housing space. So that's something that I think helps us sleep at night. It's it's just slow and steady. And, and I think the continued growth for Central Texas continues, projects to be slow and steady. I'm glad that you mentioned interest rates because in these more expensive markets like Austin, you still have a strong economy, but people are moving there. They want to buy houses. Interest rates have gone up, you know, more than doubled for home mortgages since they Fed started hiking rates last year. Have you seen that have a big impact on the, you know, residential, the single family housing space? Has that bled over into multifamily in Austin specifically? I mean, what are you seeing in that market with the increases in rates? Well, I think it's maybe not as market specific, but as interest rates have risen just on the mortgage side, you've seen a, it's obviously more expensive to get a mortgage. So your purchasing power has, has reduced some. With the inflow of population we've seen though, you've got a lot of folks that are coming with means coming from the coasts, you know, in a, in a lot of cases where their, their dollar goes a lot further. And so, well, it's a astronomical price, you know, in local sense, and they can't believe that neighborhood is now selling for in that range. Somebody coming from the coast, it's like, oh, this is a, this is a bargain. And so that's continued to fuel it. But I think you've seen, there's data coming out about how much, and again, this is not necessarily central Texas, but. Someone that bought a, a house and, you know, got a mortgage, you know, two years ago is going to ride that thing a lot longer and they're going to stay in that home 
two, three, four, five years longer than they otherwise would have, or, or, you know, under normal circumstances, Hey, it's time for me to get a bigger house or I'm growing my family. I want to move whatever it is. It's like, well, I'm, I'm going to make this work a little bit longer. And so you're seeing less inventory, less, less sales. I think most of the sales or majority of the sales are happening on, you know, new construction homes. There's not as many trades because I've got a, I got a really low interest rate. I'm going to take advantage of that. So that boosts the, the rental market as well, right? There's just less inventory, but people are still coming to the city. They're renting for a longer period of time while they, you know, wait for a house to be built or, or be patient looking for a housing option. So it kind of is supporting a little bit both ways. The, the affordability issue, if I can't afford a home, I'm going to be a renter for longer, or there's just less housing inventory. So I'm going to, you know, rent while I wait for the right house to pop up. So living in the markets where you invest can have pretty big advantages and the markets where you invest in and where you live have a lot of out of state remote investors investing in those areas. What mistakes do you see those remote investors making when they come to your area and buy multifamily or other investment property in Austin or San Antonio that local investors is mistakes they just might not make. Yeah. And so I'd say there's one thing that's unique about Austin and I'm not, I won't say these are mistakes that other people are making. And maybe I'll answer that by saying that the reason we've not expanded geographically and we've thought about it and we've looked at some of the, you know, big hot markets you might, you might suspect it's like, well, I want to have complete conviction about the, the asset that we're buying and the location that we're buying it. And yeah, that kind of use a poker analogy. If you sit down at the table and you don't know who the mark is, then you're the mark, you know, and I don't want to show up to another city and make a bid and not have this, the, the minute, intimate knowledge and details about what's happening, you know, it is I'm on the Southeast corner, but you really want to be on the, the Northwest corner because it's a different school zone or there's something else happening. You just little things, you know, and that's my, what I love about real estate. It's not just a spreadsheet. It's qualitative and quantitative. You know, we talk about it's art and science. I think you can get the science, you can get the spreadsheet and you can look at the numbers remotely. What's always terrified me and kept us really focused and rather than expanding is, is that art piece of it. Just not understanding all of the pieces of the puzzle and exactly what's, you know, people's preferences are at a local level for whatever reason they might exist. Oh, I really want to be in this quadrant of town or, you know, one of the, one of the areas that, that in Austin that gets talked about a lot, you know, the domain is kind of emerged as our second downtown. It's big development North of Austin. You've got a lot of jobs. There is an area that is two miles from the domain that historically has been and continues to be a pretty rough pocket, but it's always in every OM it's, oh, we're on the doorstep of the domain and, and it's, you know, gentrifying, transitioning, it's value add ripe with opportunity. And. I firmly believe it's not like, it's just, it hasn't turned. It's not, yes, on a map, it's right here. And scientifically it says, oh, look at the rents you're getting right here, but it hasn't turned. I don't believe it's going to. And that, that's what terrifies me in, in other markets that you can fall in love with that. So I'm on the doorstep of this massive job center, this, whatever it is, but not knowing exactly, or, or having the conviction that it's in the history of well, here's, here's why that hasn't happened and why I don't think it will happen is what's kept us from, from looking outside. And that, and that would scare me about coming into a new market is just some of the local intimate knowledge that you need block by block. It's a great point. That makes a lot of sense. It's the unknown unknowns. And I think it ultimately boils down to 
really understanding the importance of our tenants' experiences, not just the experience of living in our properties, but their experiences of living in the market or the submarket where we invest, their experiences of trying to find work and jobs in the markets where we invest. And if we don't truly understand what it's like to be a tenant in that area, what options they have, where they might want to work, all those other things, that can be a formula for making mistakes in the locations and submarkets where we could invest, where the local guy who knows the market intimately is not going to be fooled by that OM. But coming from the outside, if we don't understand the path of progress and the direction it's going versus not going, we can make some pretty big mistakes in that way. So appreciate what you had to say there and your judicious nature, the way in which you put that point. Right now, we're going to take a quick break for our sponsor. All right, Andrew, I've got three questions I ask every guest on the show. Are you ready? Yes, sir. Awesome. First one, we're changing these up a little bit from the past, so I hope the listeners who've stuck around for a while will enjoy this. So we're going to start with first one. What is the best deal you've ever done? Um, we've had some some good winners uh, within our portfolio at Wildhorn. I'd probably pick one of those. We, you know, we bought an asset value add deal, held onto it for two years, doubled the money. It was a I think it was a 35 IRR for investors. We're able to recycle that into a, a next project. So did a couple of those with very similar returns. It's funny in my personal portfolio, I never was tracking metrics like IRR. It was just, so it, it's tough to say like how I could would compare those returns in some of these early duplexes versus some of the, you know, the larger projects we've done. Um, but I had some really good ones in the early on in the personal side as well. Yeah, IRR is a very common metric. I'm not a big fan because I think folks can oftentimes not understand the mechanics of the equation itself and can kind of trick themselves into doing deals by faking the numbers a little bit and, you know, wind up regretting it on the back end. But that's just, you know, yeah, well, I think it's to die on here. You, so you, uh, you wind up seeing a lot of like, hey, there's a 60 IRR, but if it happened in, you know, eight months, you look at, I, you made a, a one point two, which is not bad, but you know, it, it's not as high as you'd think when you're, you're touting a, oh, I hit a, a 60, a 70 RR. It's a, it's so time-based that I, I agree with you. I think it's a little bit overvalued and, you know, looking at equity multiples, probably a better measure of, of the return. I totally agree. So we had the best deal. Now we go to the other side of that coin, the worst deal. What is the worst deal or investment you've ever done or made? Yeah, well, unfortunately, I've got a couple of them, and they were both deals that I think early on in my career, I was chasing big returns, and I was kind of wanting to to believe, and these were actually, one of them was sort of real estate related, one of them was not, but wanting to believe a, a home run story and, hey, here's an opportunity to make a huge return, a 10x, you know, 8x return, and probably being green enough that I, I didn't realize the the risks that you'd have in there. I didn't do enough due diligence on the sponsor uh, at the end of the day where they just both were, you lost your, your money, moved on. I, I think what that did though, is it, A, it really got me to value real estate and saying, Hey, the, the hard asset that you can see, feel, touch is, is really, really important. And that being okay you know, with a, a lower return, being conservative with a, Hey, a 1.5 X, you know, over three, four years is, is good. You know, and there's like, that's not, don't be afraid of that. Something we talk about now of like, Hey, if, if our projections say it's a 14 IRR, you were just talking about how it's not a, an imperfect measure, but 
know, it doesn't have to say 20 or 25, everything's risk adjusted. So if it says 60, you got to recognize there's a lot of risk there. And so going through a couple of, of learning experiences like that really helped, I think, ground me in, in what my investing thesis and what I was going to look for both long before I, th I thought I'd ever be a, a sponsor, but how important that is now that you're on the sponsor side of being realistic, but being confident and Hey, I'm, I'm not ashamed of a deal. If it says a 13, you know, here's the reason why we think it's a good deal and it's risk adjusted and you'll make your, make the decision that's best for you. Nice. Well, consistent base hits are very important. And, you know, I think sometimes we don't understand how important risk and loss are to our projections and, and really our ultimate investment goals. We kind of discount the risk a bit more than we really should and what we have to do to make up for losses. But that's a conversation for another day. Yeah. My favorite question here at the end of the show is what is the most important lesson you've learned in business and investing? To get started, I think going back to me buying the the first duplex really and kind of transitioning from, if you want to call that the, the transition from passive to active, but just recognizing I didn't have it all figured out. And I remember distinctly pulling up to the, that first, it was actually a fourplex and I was being terrified. I was dropping off a letter to all the residents. Hey, I'm the new, your new landlord. Here's where you're going to pay rent, introduce myself. I mean, I was petrified of knocking on these doors and realizing that I didn't have a clue what I had just done, but you, you learn by doing, and you, you've got to get started. And so, you know, letting the sort of the fear of, of not getting going. Don't let that outweigh just the benefit of, of getting the experience and, and get started. And it's allowed kind of all of the, the things we've done and, and the stuff that I'm so passionate, excited about what we're doing now was because of just getting started. I think you gotta, you, you gotta take those steps, you know, whatever it's, whether it's the education path or actually, you know, dipping your toe in the water or walking up and buying a rental house, whatever that first step is, but you gotta get it started. Otherwise you just sit on the sidelines and that's, that's not a whole lot of fun. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for joining us today and sharing all these lessons. If folks want to track you down, where can they find you? Uh, yeah, well, like, I really appreciate you having me. This has it's been a lot of fun and enjoyed the conversation. People want to find us and Wildhorn Capital is, is our company and our website is wildhorncap.com. My email is andrew at wildhorncap.com. Probably the easiest place to reach out if, if you want to have a conversation, ask a question, whatnot. Love to, love to engage, but we're pretty easy to, to find if you're looking for us. Great. Well, thank you once again for joining us today. To everybody out there, thank you for tuning in. If you're enjoying the show, please take a moment and leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Five stars if you don't mind, you guys. I appreciate that so, so much. That helps other people learn about the show because that helps us rank higher in the Apple Podcast ecosystem. And I'm always honest with you guys. It gives me a nice little warm and fuzzy feeling because I get to see that you're engaging with the content and you're escaping the Wall Street Casino along with us. Don't forget to subscribe and catch us here every Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday. Right now, I hope you have a great rest of your day, and we'll talk to you on the next one. Bye-bye.